This podcast is recorded on stolen and unceded Aboriginal land. We acknowledge the First Nations and elders of this country and we join their calls for justice. Really, you're a hyphenated name dick. <laughs> I'm a renter and I represent my electorate. I actually know how the people feel. Go and get stuffed, you tree Tory prick. <laughs> you are a stain on the blanket of humanity. Sit yourself. Sit, y- sit yourself, sit you upstart you- shit. Exclamation <laughs> point. Sit, sit yourself, yourself, you upstart shit. Sit yourself down? I don't know. Sit yourself. He's vaguely like English, this guy, I think. I just get English vibes. I might be mixing him up with another state labor. Really? You're a hyphenated (laughs) name dick, innit? I'm a renter. I represent my electorate. I absolutely know how the people feel. Go and get stuff, you tree Tory prick. You tree Tory prick. (laughs) You're a stain on the blanket of humanity, innit? Sit yourself down. Robert Skelton, MP for Nicklin at Team Nicklin. Incredible stuff. Okay, so this is directed Yet at Max Chalamatha. Another Queensland MP comes to me with the goods. All you people learning the cast of characters of my wife <laughs> in Queensland Parliament that you don't know these people. Don Brown, boring. Old news. No one cares. Mm. I'm all about mm-hmm. Skelton now. <laughs> so the theory that I saw, this is tweeted at Max, of course, in the, in the wonderful week of housing debate. The theory was that this is he wanted to post this on a different account that he has rather than his official MP one? I don't think so. Do you think, think that's so. true? No, okay. This no, is because he has skeleton. form. You know, he has form on this. Okay. So there is an article from March last year, Sunshine Coast Labor MP Rob Skelton apologises for abusive post aimed at voters. <laughs> a Sunshine Coast Labor MP <laughs> has apologised for telling voters to, quote, bugger off with your bullshit <laughs> and in an abusive social media post that has since been deleted but not before it was screen grabbed. A familiar story uh, with this. This tweet yes. was like immediately deleted, right? <laughs> yes. So yes. <laughs> he, a uh, member for Nicklin's Rob Skelton's now deleted Thursday night post. Interesting that they often seem to happen of a night time, of an evening oh, as he's just okay. sitting around. That's weird. Um, <laughs> he, he was on his official MP page where he asked, quote, to all the idiot trolls out there, just stay off social media. The community notice boards and government need to provide actual real information. Great that you take advantage of the situation, but just fuck off for a minute. We need people to be safe. For God's sake, bugger off with your bullshit. Hell yeah, dude. This yeah. guy is a real one. He loves We've it. We've got Mike. Oh, I was just going to add, with the one, the most recent one, he actually says, I represent my electorate. So it was meant to be for his actual account. That's true. true? That's a very good point. You're absolutely right. And I read it and I represent Value add from Mike. That's true. No, he he absolutely posted this from his official account (laughs) and then was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I shouldn't. I think like the premier came out later in the week and was like, guys, be nice. Be nice now. You may be interested to know, of course, so he is a representative for Nicklin. He's a first-term MP right. who won in, according to the ABC website, a shock Labor victory. He's oh. basically, he's a COVID MP. He's one of the ones that, like, they never would have expected to pick up this seat. In fact, they right. expected to maybe probably lose the election until COVID came along and everyone was like, Queen Palaszczuk, Queen Chief Health Officer Jeanette Young, we love you. Thank you for c- closing the borders. We are going to reward you now with a uh-huh. shitload of new seats, one of which was Nicklin, where he holds the seat on a 0.1% margin. <laughs> oh, shit. Yes. That's huge. Okay. Now, he's 49 years old. He used to be, he's an he's a ex-veteran. He used to be in the Defence Force. Yep. He's a, then he's a firefighter. Seems okay, like a Defence family kind of thing. Right. 
Yeah. He worked as a firefighter, raising the rank of lead firefighter at Brisbane International Airport. That's interesting. Mm. And do we think he actually is a renter? Do he's actually a renter? I don't know. Maybe. I guess so. We saw emails last year going back and forward where someone was questioning a government policy of Mr Skelton's and he res responded to that person in quite a bizarre way and also said the Day of Atonement is coming. This is a guy that threatens his own community. Also, can we just address hyphenated names? Now, <laughs> it's fair enough to make a joke about the prevalence of hyphenated names within the Greens, yeah. but I think it's totally fine. Two dads. But Pardon? Two dads. <laughs> <laughs> What is that what you say? We got two dads? I can't remember who where I got that joke from, but someone was like, Oh yeah, that's what we would always like, that's that's the insult. Like if someone right. has a hyphenated name, you're like, Oh, you got two dads. <laughs> I don't know, I don't get it. That's pretty well, obviously a woman couldn't have a surname of, of her own. Mm, but I guess this so. is what I'm saying, like, yeah, surely there are people uh, obviously there are people from working class backgrounds or progressive backgrounds who have hyphenated surnames from a either a feminist point of view or because because that's that's what they that's what they wanted to do. It is it is, it is traditionally been associated with some level of uh, privilege and esteem and elite thing yeah. to have this hyphenated name, but that is increasingly. It's like a liberal I think it's seen as like a li like small L liberal thing, right? Like a social right. progressive, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean Penny Allman Payne is a very progressive person. She's a public school teacher, yes. trade unionist. You know, she's not yeah. la dee da But um, I guess they <laughs> will keep going for it. And I assume I Max is it's pretty funny that all of our MPs hyphenated names, to be fair. Well, two dads make sense because they're all raised by gays, you see. That's, that's very great. Yeah, exactly. Gay, gray, greens. <laughs> if you want the goal for life, free marijuana, vote greens. Damn it, the frog was wrong. It is easy being Greek because you can promise the world and you don't have to Order. deliver anything. We're stuck with the hosts of Chapo Shithouse Podcast. Serious danger. Hello, I'm Emerald Moon. Weird name, I know. Did you see someone as well tweeted in reply to our one of the Serious Danger tweets? I love this when people like tweet at Serious Danger. Like, as if no one, I don't know who they think is seeing this tweet. And they're like, yeah, Emerald Moon, weird name I know, ran in, <laughs> in my electorate years ago. Um, and she was a real piece of work. And I'm like, oh, who do you yeah. think is seeing this except me, Emerald Moon, with the weird name? I did say that, yes. Yeah, they're not happy. Happy with you at all. Uh, this is not an official Greens Party podcast. It is made possible with the help of the Green Institute and produced by Michael the Griff Griffin, who has one dad. And this week, we're going to be joined by New South Wales Senator and Greens Deputy Leader, Dr. Maureen Faruqi, to discuss housing, young people mm -hmm. being cool and not mm -hmm. becoming lame, mm -hmm. and the scourge of student debt and the fight for mm -hmm. free higher education. And mm -hmm. Emerald, as we speak, is trying to get tickets to Taylor Swift. Well, yeah, but it's not going to happen. Like, I have lost hope. I've got my computer here. I'm in the stupid fucking waiting room. Everyone knows if probably people watch, listen to the podcast have been sitting in the waiting room of death. And every second that I sit here, I have to, like, deal with the increasing cognitive dissonance of, of like, how extremely wealthy and kind of exploitative Taylor Swift as, like, a as an, an entity, as an institution is, and I have to look at the Ticketek page that has presented by Crown on it. <laughs> I'm like, fuck, Taylor, just, just let me go to your stupid show and forget about everything for a second. What would your fellow band members in Class War think of you? 
I know. I'm so I'm such a big hypocrite. If you call me Emerald Moon hypocrite, yep. I would happily do an episode about Taylor's politics at some point because didn't she try, Mm. she like dipped her toe into politics at some point and people kind of lost their mind because she's obviously got a very maybe socially conservative southern base, particularly from her country days. Didn't she sort of say, hey, Democrats might be okay and people got a little bit angry? It was because her team, like her management had for the entire first part of her career basically prevented her, everyone around her had been like, you can't talk about politics, you can't talk about politics, it'll completely ruin your career. And there is this fantastic scene in the documentary Miss Americana about her where it actually shows her arguing with like her dad and these other old men about her decision to literally just make a post on Instagram saying like, I'm voting Democrat and you should too for the first time. Mm. Um, And, yeah, she gets very emotional and since then she's come out and, you know, she talks about politics a lot now. But there was, yeah, I mean, it would be interesting to do uh, an episode on it maybe because in the vacuum of information about her political leanings, all of these far right like and Nazi groups claimed her as their Aryan queen and there's all these like conspiracies about her being seriously like on one of their, on their side. So. That's why I'm so vocally left wing because so many far right groups Otherwise tried people to, would <laughs> tried to claim their, me. Their prince, yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you so much to our beautiful new patrons. Patreon.com forward slash serious danger AU. For just three bucks a month, you get bonus incredible content. Joseph, Michaela, Katie, Utkrist, apologies if I'm butchering that, Alex, Thomas, Jill, Daniel, Morteza, Helena, Peter, Helen, and Freya. Thank you so, so much. Many of you. You little drama queens, you little little content figures. <laughs> here for the messy, messy react video that we just put out, where we I blind reacted to the friendly joys video as Tom explains it to me. Yeah, I thought it was a really good. I thought it's some of our best work actually. And if you want to hear it, then yes, you'll people have to become a patron. It. it was good. Stuff. Many people are saying that it's a very good episode. So hearing it more and more. Mm. Hey, why not give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts? If you can't become a patron, that's totally fine. No worries at all, but you can really Mm. help us out by doing that. These people have done so. Big Johnny D has given us five stars. Finally, a left-wing podcast willing to kill that. Johnny Depp? Yeah, Johnny Depp. I've been listening to the podcast for a while, and it's great. Between Emerald Moon, the funny one, and Tom (laughs) Ballard, the bat-murdering one, (laughs) the podcast makes the depressing hell of political discourse a bit easier. With interesting perspectives on climate change, social policy, and the endorsement of carpet bombing bats, <laughs> this podcast truly has it all. Mm. That's a really good review. <laughs> Chooks42 says, awesome. Anyone who gives this podcast less than five is a bum. Mm-hmm. Presumably that's a reference to what's his name? Bob Hawke. I tell you what, any boss who sacks anyone for not turning up the day is a bum. <laughs> Blake says, seriously, great danger. The best Ozpol podcast you can find. Tom and the funny one, a must-listen content every week. A real recurring theme here. So interesting. Wow. Uh, cheeky little plug too before we jump into our chat with Marine. This August, the Green Institute, which, as we say every week, helps us make this podcast a reality, are holding a big conference in Mianjin, Brisbane. The theme is the city transformed urban life at the end of the world as we know it. They're talking about things like democratic organising in the cities of the future, urban ecologies, planning in crisis, commoning the city, and diversity, social cohesion, and anti-racism in the city. And unveiling our secret plot to rename Brisbane to Mianjin, oh. as you may have heard on Sky News this week and from the Brisbane Lord Mayor. Fuck yes. And that would, of course, <laughs> destroy society according to the current level. Exactly. It's happening August 18th and 19th at Griffith University and there are more details in the show notes if you want to head along and buy a ticket. Now, 
uh, the, the ticket price is pretty substantial, um, mm. but there are a few schemes that allow people, if you're struggling, you're in financial hardship, uh, to have that uh, discounted or, or um, forgiven the subversary schemes and stuff. So if you're interested- Taylor, money take notes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. If you need to choose between Taylor and Greenies Issue Conference, then um, that's a decision you'll have to make. But we'll put the details in the show notes if you want to go along to the Green Institute Conference for 2023. I welcome the Premier's commitment today that her government has no plans to change Brisbane's name. However, clearly the Greens at a local, state and federal level are all hell-bent on changing Brisbane's name. Along with wanting to defund the police, backing break and entering and completely cutting road funding, this is just another example of how the destructive Greens will adversely impact every Brisbane household. All right, let's do it. She's here, everyone. Dr. Maureen Faruqi is the Green Senator for New South Wales. She's the Deputy Leader of the Greens. She holds the portfolios of education, anti-racism, animal welfare, international aid and global justice, and the Republic. She's very busy, but she's on the show. <laughs> Hello, Maureen. Thanks for being on Serious Danger. Oh, hi, Tom. Hi, Emril. Thanks for having me. Finally. Yay. Finally. <laughs> yeah, we got there. <laughs> So much to talk to you about. Um, first off, we've been covering a lot on the show. The fight over housing justice and the Greens' position has been raging in Parliament. It's been going off in the media, on Twitter. Some government MPs have, in my view, lost their minds. They've decided to blame the Greens for the existence of homelessness in some pretty despicable ways, which we might get into. And we've had this debate over rent freezes and, re- and rent caps really playing out um, uh, across the media too. How have you received all this, Maureen? What are your views on the way the housing debate has sort of played out over the past couple of weeks in in parliament and in in society yeah there's a lot actually that has played out in parliament last couple of weeks um tom i mean i was talking to emerald earlier and saying i've actually just been recovering this week (laughs) after a bruising two weeks and you know we realized again in a big way what a toxic place it was with more Mm. allegations of sexual harassment there was a very unedifying and pretty racist debate on the voice yeah. Um, as we mm. saw as well, like an all-nighter in the Senate, where pretty much we had to sit there and be tortured by the Liberal Nationals talking about how advan- how much of an advantage the voice would give First Nations people and that we would have a, two, you know, a, a two-class society. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's, it yeah, was just a two-class horrific. society. Wouldn't that be terrible if there was I mean, inequality in, yes. a, in Australia? Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. It was just horrifying and it made my blood boil. And then obviously, as you're saying, um, the housing debate and, and the attacks, not just on the Greens, but I have to say this on our incredible MP who's been fighting so hard uh, for housing justice, Max Chandler-Mather. Um, the personal attacks on, on him were pretty disgraceful, mm. to be frank. And, you know, I've been kind of thinking about why this happened. And one of my assessments is that, you know, Labor's just angry that our community campaign is working. You know, <laughs> yeah. I think, that, you know, I think the major parties have actually, they lost touch with the community a long time ago. Yeah. Um, you know, their campaigning is based on focus groups and, you know, what their uh elite pals tell them is happening, whereas mm. ours is focused on you know, talking to the people on the ground and finding Crazy. out how they're feeling. So that's what was making Labour angry. They were angry because because of the community campaign. They had to put $2 billion uh, immediately into building more public housing. Uh, which in its own is like really crazy because that's a good thing. It's a good thing that a community <laughs> campaign is working, right? I thought yeah. that's what they wanted. It's a good yes, thing. That's but, a good yeah. thing. 
it's a good thing. It seems like it's all a political game, mm. game playing. Whereas mm. from where I sit, for, for me and for us, it's not a game. You know, no, it's people's mm. lives. Mm. And we, they're not pawns in this game. We have this piece from Paul Sacco in The Age. Uh, the title was White Hot, The Political Brawl That Has Albanese Losing His Cool and included this interesting paragraph. Labor MPs privately speculate that Chandler Mather's tactics on the half, a stock market fund that would use earnings for fu- to fund social housing, citation needed, but anyway, are splitting <laughs> the Greens party room and causing unease among the party's mm. more moderate MPs. Mm. But mm. according to several Green sources, his colleagues are energised by the feedback they receive in their electorates and back their young colleague strongly <laughs> in party room meetings in Canberra. Now, you're in the party room, Marine. What's the deal? Give us the scoop. Are you divided or energised? <laughs> oh, my God. Like, really, the, every single one of us is so much in agreement with what mm. we are doing right at this point. I mean, I'm frankly energized. We had a big door knock um, in Sydney um, just a few weeks ago, you know, where 20 people showed up and, you know, we did door knocking for two hours and everyone came back from after that door knock really energized and telling us how people are really stressed, firstly, Mm. about how rents are going up. And Sydney is one of those electorates where a vast majority of people are renters. Um, But also, like, we're energized because people are appreciative or, you know, of of what we're pushing for. Mm. So they agree with what the Greens are doing. And, you know, polling tells us that as well, to be frank. Mm. We know that 60% of the people in a recent poll said that they wanted, they support rent freezes. Mm. Um, just a recent poll, I had 68% of people saying that Labour is not doing enough um, to ensure affordable and mm. secure rentals. So mm. um, I, I just don't understand how else... We can convince Labour that this is what people are facing and something has to be done more than what they're doing. Because even they have, you know, does very little for building public homes, but it does nothing, nothing for renters. Yeah. Um, so we we're not going to let up. We've, I'm very energized. I can tell you that. And most of my my colleagues are as well. And we're all in vehement agreement that this is the way to go. Yeah, apparently Labor is also energised. They're getting out there. This is also from the article. Labor's, however, Labor's well-oiled political machine that now dominates mainland Australia won't give up another seat without a fight, and it wants Griffith, the Brisbane-based seat won by Chandler Mather, back in its own hands. Labor Senator Murray Watt and dozens of volunteers have been begun door-knocking in Griffith to make Chandler Mather's first term his last. Emerald Moon, you're on the ground in Greensland. Can you confirm, is door-knocking happening? Are the labor volunteers hitting the streets. What's going on? I wish I could tell you that I have heard of anyone like having a, you know, shaking labor volunteer show up to their door to explain why they should like have to face unlimited rent increases. But I haven't right. heard of anyone doing this. Somehow the, the dozens haven't been able to, to reach the masses yet. Um, <laughs> but, but hey, listen, if we have energized them to actually go and talk to people on the ground, that's yes. a good thing. Yes. That's, yes. Thing, you know? like, that's right. Uh, I think no politician, no political party should take their voters for granted. So, you know, mm. bring it on, bring it on. Let's have the door knocking wars. Absolutely. I'm for it. (laughs) I mean, door knocking is one of the, is if there was a light bulb moment for me when I thought, you know, I could probably be an MP, it was door knocking. Yeah, really? That that sheer joy and exhilaration Mm -hmm. and privilege 
to be able to knock on someone's door and have a chat with them about yeah. you know what they wanted the world to be like you know that was it for me really yeah yeah that's awesome all right well another strategy is to just tell lies and cynically use the housing crisis in this country and people's experience of it to back in your own shitty policy agenda the mm-hmm. labor mp for richmond justine elliott tweeted out this she tweeted a link to a channel news story channel 7 news story interviewing a homeless man and she says watch this a 67 year old homeless man speaks on how he's affected by the greens party blocking social and affordable housing when the greens party delays housing to run a door knocking campaign just remember that they are the reason people don't have a safe place to call home uh emeralds you had a very completely understandably visceral reaction to that tweet can you talk us through it what your, your thoughts on justine elliott the labor mp for richmond's uh intervention there Justine Elliott, yeah, so Richmond is, that's Northern Rivers, that's Byron, that's where I come from, that's where my family lives. Uh, And I actually don't think that anything else makes, like fills me with rage as much in this whole debate as her deciding to pipe up, uh, presiding, like being the MP, supposedly representing an area that I would, you know, potentially has the worst or at least one of the worst housing crises in the fucking country Mm. uh, to talk about housing. You want to talk about housing, a property investor, by the way. And, yeah, it's, you know, I I responded to her tweet um, saying, you know, how she was responsible for people like my mum having to choose between medical care or, you know, paying bills or paying the rent uh, and that she should just shut the fuck up Mm. and, you know, enjoy her last days as an MP because... The Greens are going to win if she carries on like this. And it's true. My like, my mum is literally fighting an, an unfair, like a rent increase that she can't afford right now mm. because, yep, she never could afford a home. She has rented my whole life. She continues to rent in arguably an, an unsafe dwelling in the Northern Rivers because that's all she can afford as a single older woman on a DSP. And if she, she lives in constant fear of a rent increase or eviction because Mm. people like Justine Elliott and her party will do nothing to protect people like Mm. her and will then Mm. go online and say that it's the Greens' fault that people are homeless, like, Hmm. Did you see this particular <laughs> report and this this tweet, Maureen? What do you make of all this? Uh, I did not see this tweet, but you know, also let's remember that Justine Elliott is an MP for an area that has been through devastating climate-induced yes. floods, and people are still waiting years mm. after to you know to get a home. The people are still living after that flood in caravans mm. um, and in cars because their homes were taken, and they have no alternative choice at the moment and and like you you know i visit the area quite often and i've met people living in garages renting garages for 450 to 500 dollars a week a garage it is like it is a a terrible place for renters at this point in time and and exactly it i think it makes uh, it would have if i had seen that it would have probably my staff would have had to stop me from tweeting back something uh, pretty visceral as well. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, yeah it, it, it is horrific. Again, I say this is not a game. This is not a political game. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah and which is, what, which is what she's playing it there, right? And there were some yeah, responses exactly. to this tweet that I think exactly. are important, right? So Jack Tui, who's been doing some great work on social media about the um, housing crisis, went to Canberra, met with Greens and M- Labor MPs oh. to talk about housing and stuff. Jack Tui tweeted th- this, that Justine Elliott's uh, tweet was disgusting, weaponizing a homeless man and putting words in his mouth. I sat with Richard for 45 minutes yesterday. He spoke at length about the rejuvenation, a.k.a. the public housing across the road from where he camps out, getting raised for luxury apartments. So, again, a complete misrepresentation of what this particular guy. Now, no one should be homeless in this country and everyone at every level of government should be doing everything they could to get people off the streets and build public and a social affordable housing for everyone. But to blame this man's experience and to to imply that he was talking to the media about mm, the mm. getting angry at the Greens for their position for pushing for more social and affordable housing is pretty goddamn disgraceful. Yeah, and, you know, they're getting very frustrated. I understand that because the Greens are getting very popular because we are fighting for the people of who live in this country. But rather than, you know, weaponizing uh, the people's, you know, situations, they should actually be doing something about it. I mean, they are in government. Mm. This is the thing. It's not like uh, Labour saying they're powerless is like kind of Gina Reinhardt crying poor, right? <laughs> really, them saying power, they were powerless to do anything about rent, rents because the states are involved. Bullshit. Yeah, yeah, total, total bullshit. You know, they, they are, it, Anthony Albanese is the prime minister of this country. He can bring the wall-to-wall Labour governments on mm. the mainland, their premiers, Labour premiers together, incentivize them like he has with the $2 billion. Mm. Um, mm. And we can immediately have a rent freeze or cap rents. Mm. Yeah. It's pretty amazing how that's where the debate's shifted, even even to the point where rent caps is now viewed by many as like the compromise, the compromise. decision to come, right? Mm, right? Rent mm. freeze is like, oh, that's the crazy hippie uh, demand of the Greens and then the, these rent caps are, are perhaps a bit more reasonable when people are looking at the examples of the ACT. A lot of the debate is playing out. If people are interested, back in episode 79, Emerald really went on a, a deep dive onto all the studies and the data around the um, how these kind of uh, programs work, rent freezes and rent caps and international examples. And this has sort of been playing out a lot this week too, people saying it doesn't work, there's nowhere it can work. Max was citing a few examples of places where they have introduced rental boards or rent caps and rent prizes, and that's sort of playing out a lot. I went along to Max's town hall on ha- housing on Monday, which is really interesting and well worthwhile. And if you see those kind of things pop up every now and again and you're a Greens member, I recommend getting them along. He sort of clarified some of the details on how the Greens rent freeze might work, and I thought this was like quite interesting and, and helpful. Um, and I'll just briefly run through these. Rents will be frozen for all residential tenancies at the current weekly amount of rent as of as at 1st of January 2023 for a period of two years. This is the rent freeze that we're talking about. The reference date for rents would be slightly backdated to avoid landlords raising rents in anticipation of the freeze taking effect. Mm. The freeze on rent would apply to the property, not the specific tenant or lease, meaning there would be no incentive to evict tenants in order to raise the property's rent. Fucking common sense. (laughs) Common sense. Makes a lot of sense. If the property is a new build, a new entry into the rental market, or has been substantially renovated, then the landlords can only rent the property at or below the median rent for that postcode or for that type and size of property. The plan would also see the banning of no grounds evictions. They all seem pretty good to me. These seems to be clarifications about the you know the details of how things would work that make a lot of sense, right? Yeah, absolutely. So we have introduced the bill. Um, I introduced the bill in the Senate to do exactly that. And as you know, we've also got an inquiry now, Senate inquiry into rental stress 
which will give us uh, you know, an opportunity to talk to more people and try and push labor even harder on this. Yeah. Emerald, do you think we're like winning the argument on this? Do you think, is it still sort of uh, up in the air or do you think this, this kind of like sensible stuff is cutting through? Well, I think like as you as you just kind of alluded to, the idea that rent caps, some sort of limit on the amount by which your rent can increase is now deemed, you know, not a crazy idea. Hmm. That indicates to me that we are to some extent winning. We're certainly making a positive difference because like I think I think I said last episode, we only talk, started talking about rent freezes relatively recently, the Greens, hmm. um, and rent Rent caps was something that, you know, that's something that would make a huge difference to people's lives. And even the fact that that is, we've made that appear a potential possibility, a political possibility in Australia mm. is enormous. And I think based on the polling that Maureen just mentioned, absolutely, we are winning the argument when it comes to um, highlighting the inadequacies of Labor's plan and Labor's approach to the housing crisis mm. and particularly when it comes to renters. So the fact that, yeah, more than two-thirds of voters say that the Albanese government isn't doing enough to ensure affordable and secure rentals and 75% thinks that the government isn't doing enough about the cost of living. So right. they have been, you know, this is a government that is trying continually to position itself as the party that is you know, tackling housing crisis, tackling tackling the cost mm-hmm. of living crisis um, for the ordinary working person and the public isn't buying it. And I think that is in at least, you know, large part due to the Greens showing there's an alternative. I will say that poll did show that 6% of voters think that the government is doing too much to secure <laughs> affordable and rental houses. I wonder who <laughs> their property down. interests might be. <laughs> Last question on this from me. This week also the, the Greens MP in New South Wales, Jenny Leong, uh, who's a fighter for renters and does awesome work, but she introduced a bill. And I just want clarity on this. Maybe you know, Maureen. It was to freeze rent increases, which mm. I feel like, I don't know if that's a little bit confusing because we've got a rent freeze going on. We freeze rents or we capping rent increases. But this was to freeze rent increases. I'm not sure if you crossed this, Maureen. Was that bill about rental caps or freezing rents or do, do you know much about um, Jenny's push there? Listen, I think it's, it is about freezing rents. So when we right. say <laughs> freeze rent increases, it means exactly that. So freeze rents so they can't be increased is my understanding of it. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, great. Good. <laughs> so okay, it's pretty well, much in a, a, a line. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. A hold, a hold, to, a hold to on rent, rent increases. And on freeze, rent increases. Stop, so it's pretty much kill. aligned to the, you know, a federal campaign. Okay, great. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Well, yeah, solidarity to Jenny. I know that it was overshadowed. I think a lot of the introduction mm-hmm. of that bill, that debate, mm-hmm. by the fact that we had this hand down from ICAC about Gladys Berejiklian being corrupt. But um, again, the pressure from Greens MPs at the state level tying into this federal campaign, making it possible, pointing out the fact that Labor is feeding us bullshit when they say they can't do this um, is all part of the fight. So so good news. Mm. I wanted to I wanted to go into the polling a little bit more. So mm. the same polling that came out, this is the essential polling published in The Guardian about that support for more action on housing and, and renters' rights. It also, there was a subsequent article that was specifically about leadership ratings, which mm. I think there's mm. a lot of interesting stuff in there. So the, the Guardian kind of framed it as, you know, that Albanese's support for Albanese as preferred prime minister had dropped for the, for the first time. Mm. Um, but there's also, there's uh, <laughs> kind of a, a framing of the Greens and of Bant as preferred PM, like the inclusion in that story itself mm. is interesting, I think, because yes. it's unusual and people may not realise how unusual that is. Mm-hmm. So 
the the polling showed that Albanese's um, support as rating as PM. 36% had a positive view. That's a drop of five points at his lowest rating as prime minister. Dutton, 27% had a, had a positive view. That's up four points, What? but also 34% had a negative view. Mm-hmm. And then Adam Bent, you might know him, Maureen, uh, 21%, <laughs> <laughs> pos- you know, yeah. 21% positive, 29% neutral, and 38% negative. But the fact that, the, that they've done a preferred PM rating for three parties is really unusual, right? I don't know that I've ever even really seen that before, like framed equally. That was my first thought when I saw that. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I think it's the first time they brought the Greens leadership into uh, a discussion about leaders mm. of parties. And that, I think, just shows um, the traction that we are having in the community. And I think the interesting thing about that poll was that when you go to younger people, it gets mm-hmm. higher, the popularity yeah. um, gets higher. Um, and it also shows that how the two-party system is actually now uh, collapsing a little bit. We saw, saw at the last election that I think one third of the voters voted for parties other or, yeah. or you know, politicians other than the two parties. Mm. And also that poll, I think the Guardian podcast did a good analysis of that poll where it says that 80% of under 35s say that they are up for, for being convinced the binary political system is not for them. Mm. I didn't even see that stat. They did the numbers that was just on this morning or last night. So that's a huge number. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, you know, and that's, I think, on the back of like our very strong campaigns on housing um, and rents and also student debt. Yeah. Mm. And climate probably as well. And and climate has always been there, but things really are changing. And it does not surprise me one bit about younger people. Mm. Um, you yeah. know, it, it doesn't because I meet young people every single day and you know, their issues are the issues that we are fighting for. Yeah, so yeah, it's, this... it's not a surprise to me at all. Yeah, I think, so that's right, because I read this this article and the sentence that I saw initially was, quote, you know, the Greens leader Adam Bant appeared even less popular than Dutton with just 21% having a positive view twenty nine and, you know, 29% neutral and 38% negative. Um, but then I saw people soon afterwards pointing out that, you know, massive support among the younger demographics. Um, and actually it's only, I think, in the 55s and over that that Dutton even beats Bant. Like mm-hmm. and it, it it is striking though, I think, that so Adam Bant is now popular than the Prime Minister. Oh, this is this is Albanese. This is from Ripping, Ripping Hot Takes on Twitter, <laughs> is the um, their handle. Adam Bant is now popu- more popular than Prime Minister among voters aged 18 to 34, according to the latest Essential poll. Um, and in a pretty abysmal sign for Peter Dutton, he's less popular than Bant in every age demographic except for over 55s. Mm-hmm. That said, 7% approval among boomers for Bant is hilariously low. Not surprising, though, when you consider the Greens' entire pitch at the moment revolves around the unfair accumulation of wealth amongst older Australians. Sorry. Good. It's Sorry, working. Guys. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's an interesting one, right, because I'm like, I think there's also, though, I think it's a combination of, like, sure, over 55s might be threatened by our politics and mm. our proposals it, since they do hold a disproportionate level of, of wealth and there's a, there's a likelihood that a lot of them 
who hold a lot of that wealth would have some of it distributed under our policies Mm -hmm. to those who Mm -hmm. need it. Mm -hmm. But I also think, again, a lot of it would be that over 55s, to them, it would be an absurd idea to have the Greens as as prime the Greens leader be the prime minister. And so when you're talking about preferred prime minister approval rating as a potential prime minister, it's like that that to me must at least be a factor, right? Mm. Oh, I'm sure it is. I mean, people people maybe of that, I guess, age would not even consider the Greens ever being, you know, party of government in that exactly. sense. Exactly. Even if they or might or vote in the Senate. Minister. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly yeah. right. They just don't mm. view it as such. Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I just thought also the, um, it was, I guess it was interesting to me that as people get older, they become more conservative was part of that polling as well. Mm. Because so, like, for me, I'm the exact opposite. You know, as I grow older, I become more and more left and more and more <laughs> bold about being left. More and yeah, more yeah, left. that's the good path. That's yeah, the, yeah. That's the path She's one of the good making. ones, everyone. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But, but, and so this then became, I think, in the later half of this week, um, and we'll get into, there was a study released on this mm. that was quite interesting. Initially, after this polling came out, um, Elizabeth Thompson, who once, you know, who's a, been on serious danger right I think mm. at the national conference has been a greens candidate um but she put out this this tweet thread on twitter about uh that the greens need to look at how we retain olders as they get uh, how we retain voters as they get older mm. she said in reference to that strong support for for among younger people this is only one demographic and the Greens struggle to retain the youth vote as people get older. A few elections now where the youth vote for the Greens remains high, but the 25 to 40 age drops considerably and there's no retention in that demographic shift for the Greens. Uh, as people get older, they either never see the Greens do things in their community because they don't exist outside the inner cities or they meet old people who only care about trees. And mm. I'm like, I'm torn on this. So initially I was like, I do think there's a question about pigeonholing ourselves and I have, you know, in the party previously pushed back against the idea that we just become the party of young people and, you know, our audience is young people so we go for young people, young people, young people because certainly I think that, like, inequality cuts across, the, you know, the generational, uh, cuts across generations in mm-hmm. Australia and there is such ripe ground among, you know, particularly families who are struggling with cost of living pressures and people who don't own capital effectively, you know, largely that that renting class, which, of course, is is bigger among young people, but that we can't just focus on young people. But I don't actually think that the evidence bears out that we're losing young people as they get older increasingly. I mean, I very much agree with you that we can't be pigeonholed into the party of just young people. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I have tried to be very conscious of that in the in the kind of in in my uh, when i speak or when we communicate um and just giving you the example of student debt people mm. often see student debt in it, in it as an issue for just young people and yes it is but there are people in their 30s in their 40s in their 50s even in their 60s mm. who yeah. have a huge burden of debt yeah um and we i was very surprised when we started getting emails and phone calls from parents and grandparents as well, whose grandchildren and children had huge debts. uh, And they were so concerned about it as Mm. well. Um, So I I do think that we have to be a bit careful in how we pitch ourselves, because these issues do run across ages. Absolutely. Mm. But didn't that um, 
the report that you were just talking about. That's right. That, yeah, that it did say that that is changing as well, that as people mm-hmm. get older, they are less likely now to vote more conservative than yeah. they were previously. So yeah, that so f- gives a different picture to what Liz was talking about, I guess. Mm. It does, yeah. So funnily enough, like maybe even the day after that conversation was happening on Twitter, mm. then the Centre for Independent Studies, mm. um, which is looks like a liberal uh, kind of think tank, yeah. um, but they published an article titled Generation Left, Young Voters Are Deserting the Right. And mm. this is part of a, a study that looks like they've been doing for some time where they look at how age affects uh, your first preference vote in mm-hmm. Australia, particularly whether you vote for the coalition. Um, and it Can we just say that- this is um, very funny? The, people might yeah. remember the Centre of Independent Studies released uh, a similar report about how young Australians are being attracted to ideas around socialism and being anti-capitalism, mm-hmm. but of course, which is terrible news for the Centre for Independent Studies. So the Centre mm-hmm. for Independent Studies regularly just publishing articles about how their political ideology Unpopular. is getting totally owned. That's what I didn't realise. I didn't know who these guys were. And then oh, only when no I was good. reading the report, they said something about like the Greens having completely unrealistic and like damaging policies. And I was like, oh, this is not. Not an unbiased like, academic <laughs> yeah. report. This is like a very liberal study. They've got a dog in the fight. Yes. They do. They yeah. do. But they still had to, you know, go with what the They're, evidence that they had. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the purpose of, like, it's like the purpose of this article is more to be like, it's a warning sign this is a terrible to the coalition. News, everyone. Yes. Um, because they found that, so Gen Z, who they have defined, I think there are varying schools of thought, but they take the definition of those people born between 1996 and 2009. Uh, those people are shaping up to be far less likely than any previous generation to become conservative as they age. Mm. Australians born after 1980 are less likely than their parents had been to shift to the right politically as they got older. And so they show this kind of that that gen- Generation X and boomers um, and the silent generation, mm. they do, they had got more conservative as they got older. Mm. Millennials, it seems like kind of not necessarily more conservative, but would start to go more towards Labor um, and kind of cement their support for for Labor. And then Gen Z, though, just doesn't show any sign, or like not to any, like to a far less extent of getting more conservative mm-hmm. as, as time goes on. And they start from a very, very low base of support mm-hmm. for the coalition in particular. And so this is kind of like a, it was reported in a lot of ways as the death knell for the coalition because if this group, you know, obviously the way that time and age works, uh, <laughs> you know, these people will take up a, a, a larger and larger portion of uh, of the voting population in the country and if they're not moving it towards the coalition as they get older, mm-hmm. then the coalition's mm-hmm. fucked. All their voters are gone. Mm. Um, <laughs> and, and that's a good thing, hey? Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. Well, I guess it could be a bad thing if we talk about the interest, the reasons why we think this happens. And I'm interested Mm, in your thoughts, mm, Maureen. But, mm, you know, mm. the theory goes that young mm. people are so screwed over by the status quo, Mm, uh, mm. you know, they cannot afford a house, which is a traditionally Mm, very conservatizing Mm, uh, experience. They can't start Mm. families younger enough. So they're getting so screwed over by neoliberal capitalism that they are staying left because Mm. um, the conservative status quo is, is so giving them such a raw deal. Mm, um, so mm. that could be bad. I mean, yes, could increase our vote, but might uh, indicate terrible uh, material conditions for young people um, at the moment. What do you, What do you think? What's What's your explanation yeah, for listen, this? Trend? I mean, I yeah, I, I think obviously we don't want a situation where you know we want to keep 
them in a condition that, that they could keep voting for us. I mean, that would be ridiculous, right? right. Yeah. Um, but but I think um, I think we could get to a place where obviously what we're fighting for is to improve the material condition of people, but also also make sure that it's a bit more complex than, you know, just doing it in a neoliberal frame. Mm. Um, and doing it in a way that is interconnected with people's well-being, with with you know climate, with the environment, with with all the other things that come into play, like you know um, s- social equity, you know racism, um, you know, transphobia, homophobia, all of that. I think that's what young people actually get mm. that it is not um, disconnected. All these issues are not disconnected. These are the young people that I talk to very often who understand that that these fights are quite interlinked. Mm. And so people who understand or political parties who understand that is why they're also connected to them. And there is a good reason, I think, given all this data, why the two major parties don't want the voting age to drop to 16 either. Mm. Because then, well, then yeah. they're truly fucked. Well, yeah, that's, that's the thing. And there's, you know, obviously there's there's big implications for the, for the coalition with this data and there are big implications for the Greens. And from my reading of the report that, you know, I kind of, I didn't read in detail, I skimmed it, but they say that it's a bit difficult to to predict what the impact would be for the Greens versus Labor because, you know, we don't know how preference flows might work in, in individual seats, et cetera. Um, but they're like, it, it likely does mean that the Greens mm. are going to get a bigger and bigger share of mm-hmm. the mm. uh, votes. Yeah. Um, so the just to like in terms of numbers, it, it predicts that the coalition's average primary vote across lower house electorates could fall by 9.1 percentage points over the course of the next six electoral cycles. Um, it's simulated to result in a 35-seat reduction in coalition seats in the House of Repre- Representatives by 2040. Um, <laughs> 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 uh, but then the question is how many of those would Labor potentially pick up? How many would other micro or minor parties or independents pick up versus how many can the Greens pick up? Um, and, uh, it, you know, I, I guess, yeah, can we... How do we stop ourselves from just falling into the trap of, oh, well, we're currently the preferred party for younger voters, um, and so we'll just sit and wait for you know, or that for that like that trend to continue, mm-hmm. and eventually we'll end up in government because yeah. you know demographics, <laughs> demographics um, are destiny, which is not yeah. like unless no. we fight hard, you know, to actually build, you know, and retain those voters. It's true that either someone else will swoop in or like the millennials, they'll just end up kind of going mm-hmm. to, to Labor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we've got to, you know, obviously maintain our campaigning, but I guess one thing that I'm always conscious of and I I push back on is this idea that we are only here to be in government or mm-hmm. um, that to get votes. I guess we've got to remember and, you know, we've got to keep reminding ourselves that we're here um, to to know work for the community to make make lives of people better to make the climate better, so so that's the bigger picture. I mean, I always go back to how we won Ballina in New South Wales, mm. uh, Ballina National Party heartland, really. Mm. Uh, but it was yeah. you know consistent campaigning for against coal seam gas, uh, for climate, you know, for social justice that finally got us there. So I think yeah. there is something to be said about having that as an overarching goal and mission always 
and not falling into this trap of chasing votes in this demographic or that demographic, while knowing yeah. that we are a political party and we have to have strategies to be able to do that. But I think never forgetting that there is a bigger mission that we are on and that is changing the world. Mm. Yeah, well, and I think similarly when you look at the Brisbane lower house seats that we've just won, um, particularly in places like Ryan where they are traditionally an LNP stronghold, Mm. that Mm. area, and the analysis coming out after the election that this was just because there were more younger voters in those areas, it's like, yes, I think that that plays, uh, that's a factor because Mm. for all the Mm. reason that we've just discussed, but a huge thing that it's overlooked was also the way that those communities had experienced Greens representatives, a Greens representative at the state level that was working within and alongside the community to improve their lives and and the way that, you know, what their experience Mm, of democracy mm, and mm, politics mm. was. Mm. And that experience, I think, played a huge role in our ability then to win votes and to grow our movement and to be able to then work alongside the community and improve people's lives. Mm. Um, So that I think, yes, I I completely agree. Like it's both. They feed off each other, right? It's not just this arbitrary thing of you look at a demographic and then you target them because young people like TikTok, so we'll do TikTok and then we'll win their votes and then la 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 we win government and isn't that great? <laughs> that's yeah, that's not how the world works. That is not how yeah. the world works. And you know, we we talk, we've spoken about young people a lot, but I just give you an example of some older people that I met just yesterday in their late sixties and seventies, and they are Greens voters because mm. of a housing policy. Yeah, mm. you know they uh, and they they were pretty comfortable. You know they were. Um, they had their own home and all of that, but they just think that it is unfair. What's mm. happening to people now is unfair. And what you say about being in the community, I mean, that's it. For me, that's what politics is about. It's not <laughs> being in parliament. It is, yeah. you know, being in community. And you know, we the talking. biggest waste of time. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's our job. So, you know, we've got to do it and things can happen there, but things will only happen there if you're grounded in the community. Mm. And you were talking about the power of, you know, door knocking. And I mean, I still meet people at every single rally that I'm out. At least one person comes up to me and says, you knocked on my door like 10 years ago. Mm. I started voting Greens and I've never stopped. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, that's how it, that's how it works. It's all about people, right? But yeah, and people and people of all ages too. So I th- I yes. think we should remind ourselves there's no contradiction in being the party of renters and being the party of say pensioners, right? Like really, yeah. if we exactly. are a mass working class party and if we believe in the horrors of privatization for example and believe that age share age care should be in public hands and fully properly funded and shouldn't be a money-making exercise. You know, we, we should be able to and have the resources and the willingness to mm-hmm. campaign as much on those issues to say across the entire life cycle, the Greens have, have got you back. And we, we, yeah. we're fighting for young people, yes, but for working people more broadly, I think that's that's got to be key to, to grow the party too. But I right? think we are resonating with the younger people so much now because these issues are affecting them the most. Right. Yeah, yeah. totally. But they yeah. are on the front line, right, of the rent crisis of the debt mm. crisis and women as well they are on the mm. front lines of these issues so we are resonating with them more at this point in time which is i think mm. fine mm. Yeah. i mean you've included this quote from the center for independent studies report which is maybe worth <laughs> a mention just to show how much they they're not 
They're not our friends. In the absence of thoughtful policy alternatives and an ability to make their case to younger voters, parties of the left have shown no hesitation in filling this vacuum with government intervention that is at best ineffective and at worst contrary to the interests of the younger voters they purport to help. For evidence of this, one need look no further than the Greens' current solutions to Australia's housing affordability problems. Mm. We're so no foolish. Even, like no extrapolation, just stated as fact. Well, I, you can I think find they're finding it very hard to kind of grapple with the fact that this is the evidence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we don't, we don't really like it. So how yeah. do we twist this around? <laughs> it's it, it is, and you had this with the socialism report too. It's like young people are stupid, right? Young people don't know mm. what's good for them. They mm. their um, dissatisfaction with the capitalist neoliberal status quo is just because. They they haven't read enough history mm. and their their solutions, their ideas that maybe working people should have more power, that you should tax the rich, that the commanding heights of the economy should be in public hands. This will all lead to disaster. And so the 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 response to these polling is not to, you know, question our own ideology and, and try to wonder why this isn't speaking to young people, mm. but to fix the young people, get the right ideas in their head yeah. and explain <laughs> to them that we need to increase supply, supply, supply is the only possible solution to fixing housing in this country. Yeah, but it's also so arrogant and dismissive you know of young people and what they think about it's just yeah yeah, it's very annoying Uh, but you know young people will have their say um and yeah we'll see where that goes (laughs) (laughs) yes we will you say intern is it a job or an internship well all my assistants are interns so is it sorry is that a paid position not at first you know when i was your age they told me all I could be was a secretary. Okay, but secretaries get paid. Just leave. Thank you so hey, much. If you for want to tell me in. what to do, put me on the fucking payroll. How about that? Also on this front, I mean, there was another tweet here that sort of brings a lot of this stuff together. This is from demographer Dr. Liz Allen. The Greens' push for a rent freeze is just like its calls for free higher education. Defies the evidence. It's ideology driven and without concern for real world consequences. We just we just keep Citation getting it wrong needed. on so many different. <laughs> I saw your response here. to that as well, which was which I thought was brilliant, Tom. <laughs> well, it's not about me, Marine, but uh, yes, <laughs> it was it was very good. I I don't understand. I just I saw that tweet and I thought. Like we ha- we've had free education, right? Like this, it's what real world consequences yes, would they, you know? Like what what are the adverse yeah. consequences? No one has ever been able to really tell me that or convince me that no. it will have you know adverse consequences in the real world. Right. So this is going to the, the Greens policy that hey, yes, for higher education, including uh, TAFE, but universities as well should be free. We should provide free public universal education. The argument, and some would say, or the evidence provided, is that if you mm. do that, then you limit the number of people that can go to university. So there are only finite resources. Free education means that there's less money to to expend on expanding the higher education system, and therefore more people will miss out. And when university was free, it was um, predominantly the children of the elite or of middle and upper class society that were able to go to mm-hmm. university. Mm-hmm. To me, and I'm interested in your, your response to that, Maureen, but th- th- if you go back to the history, when the Hawke government decided to introduce HECS, they were making a choice, right? More people wanted to go to uni, so you needed to expand the higher education system, and they chose to shift a bunch of that cost onto individual students to pay a part of the cost of their degree at the same time as they were cutting corporation tax and cutting income taxes as well. They did increase funding for universities a little bit, which did lead to the expansion of the sector, and lots more people are going to university than they were in the late 80s 
But this is this is a choice, a choice that was made by the Hawke Labor governments in the 80s to say we're only going to spend so much money uh, and, you know, students themselves are going to have to pick up the rest of the tab. Um, Do you see much good faith of this of this argument being presented to you when you're out there calling for free higher uh, education? I I think it's a pretty cooked argument, to be really frank. It it really is. And, you know, since that time, more and more of that burden has been shifted onto students. So I was talking to some friends of mine who in did their degrees in the mid 90s and they came out with an $8,000 debt. Like one was an engineering degree, mm-hmm. the other was a music degree. And look at people now coming yeah. out of uni, like mm-hmm. 40, 50, 60,000 debt per stuff. And if we talk about less students going to university, what I am be, I have been hearing from from people is that they would never have gone to uni if they knew that they would come up with so much debt. Mm. And people mm. are not doing doing further study uh, because they don't want. I have, have spoken to people in my office, for instance, who, who want to do further study, but they can't afford. And it's mainly mm. women. They, mm. they yeah. cannot even imagine having more debt added to what they already have. Mm. Um, so it, it, it just doesn't make any sense when we are when the governments are willing to give you know, 30 billion dollars a year in tax cuts. To the wealthiest, or you know, so more than three hundred billion over the next ten years, when we are going to spend three hundred sixty-eight billion dollars on war machines, it mm. is, as you said, it is completely about priorities, mm. and it yeah. is in this thinking, in this frame, that you know that this should not be universal. If we can conceive schools as being yes. universal and free, yes. why yes. Ca- why can't we con- you know conceive the whole cycle of education? as being universal and free. Well, actually, I think that kids that go to kindergarten should um, mount a debt. I think that we should put uh, the cost onto the kids <laughs> and they can pay that back in pocket yeah. money over the next uh, 20 years. And so eventually the taxpayer is not out of pocket for uh, sending little kids yeah, to, to kindy. That's my policy proposal. If if the vice chancellor of the richest university <laughs> in Australia who earns roughly as much as Joe Biden, Rishi Sunak, and Anthony Albanese combined <laughs> can 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 say that a university education should be free. Yes. And it's, I think that says a lot about where the Labour Party is on education. Well, this is so yeah. interesting. This is Duncan Maskell. He's the Vice Chancellor of the University of Melbourne. And this week, according to The Guardian, has joined the Greens and student unions in calling for tertiary education to be free. Speaking to students and staff on Tuesday evening, Maskell said it had become sadly fashionable to assume students taking out loans to pay for university was a natural order of things rather than a policy decision. University was free in Australia from 1974 until the introduction of HECS in 1989. Maskell, who is currently the highest paid vice chancellor in Australia, was a beneficiary of the policy. He said it was unequivocally true coming from my background that if I'd been required to take out a loan, I would not have gone to mm. university. Mm. Now, yeah. this is pretty wild. Like vice chancellors in Australian unis in the past have like been supporters of deregulating university fees, have, have, have they've used some of their political clout or at least advocated publicly for, you know, increasing student fees and how much individual students have to pay. There was talk of this Aussie Harvard system back under the mm. Abbott government, mm. which would have been mm. an absolute total disaster. So were you surprised to hear this from a university vice chancellor saying, no, no, students having to pay to go to uni is, is cooked and, and no good? I was. I was very, very surprised because I had just kind of gone after this particular vice chancellor in Senate estimates asking the minister whether it was obscene 
if you thought it was mm. obscene that vice chancellors were paid so much. And it is a lot of vice chancellors in Australia. They're one of the highest paid vice chancellors in the world yeah. um, mm. at a time when student debt is skyrocketing at a time where the conditions and pay of university staff are really hitting rock bottom. Um, there's so many, you know, casual staff who just don't know where the next pay packet is going to come from, working mm. under really difficult conditions. So it was a surprise, but it was a very pleasant surprise. Um, <laughs> I, and I hope, I hope more vice chancellors come out with that particular policy. But I hope mm. also that vice chancellors and management of governments actually do something about their staff conditions and push mm. governments. I mean, this is their role. And I was so, so disappointed and angry at the vice chancellors at a time when the job ready graduates package was going through and fees were being hiked and funding was being cut, that they did not, um, you know, bat for their um, communities, which is their students mm. and their staff. So that's who they need to be fighting for. Um, so I do hope more come out and do that. Yeah. So this is all happening in the context of this um, Australian Universities Accord that the mm-hmm. Labor government is pursuing. The panel is going to release an interim report this month. Education Minister Jason Clare said they're going to look at everything, including increasing affordability, which is always a real red flag mm-hmm. word whenever you hear like a neoliberal person <laughs> saying affordability. Mm-hmm. It doesn't yep. mean, never means mm-hmm. free, of course. Yeah. But what, what do we know about what this panel is going to hand down? What kind of stuff's on the table? What are we expecting from the from the um, Accord panel, uh, Marie? Yeah, so everything is on the table apparently because every question you ask the government about universities, or higher education, the, the response they have is, mm. oh, the university like, accords process is going to look at that. Um, right. So it's some kind of magic no. pudding that they are cooking up. Uh, but to be really frank, I am not very hopeful um, that something bold or radical might come out of this. Mm. Uh, just because this isn't a bold or radical government. I think mm. that's my... So we have engaged with the process. I put in two submissions, you know, talking about wiping student debt, talking about free university and TAFE, talking about, you know, at least scrapping indexation in the interim while we move towards wiping student debt and making university free, but also things like student placements and paying students for mandatory placements. Mm -hmm. That is such a big issue, especially in this cost of living crisis. Some courses, degrees require you to do six months of placements. Mm. Without yeah, being paid. Unpaid, that. no like, paid. Oh unpaid, unpaid placements, mandatory, a requirement for your degrees. And mm. how students are coping with that is, um, you know, doing that placement all day, then at five running off to their job in calls or wherever, yeah. and doing that shift for eight hours. It mm. is just unnecessary and it is just cruel. Um, you know, there's PhD students who um, their stipends haven't been raised for, I don't know, decades. And they are mm. really struggling. So, I mean, this could be, and we'll still keep pushing for this, this could be a huge overhaul of our higher education system, which works for staff and students. Like our governance in universities is really become so top down uh, with most people on, you know, the governing bodies coming from the corporate sector, not from staff and student bodies. Mm. Um, um, I I think there might be some tinkering around the edges, uh, maybe on student debt, mm. um, but it won't go uh, anywhere near solving the real problems that we have mm. uh, or overhauling the system. Um, that's why we we listen. We'll just keep campaigning for this. Like I said, the, yeah. like no one was talking about student debt 
even six or seven months ago. Mm. It was an issue that we started talking about engaging with uh, the community, with students, with unions about it. And, you know, over the past few months till June 1, there was it was a news item every single day. Mm. Um, so it's up there on the political and public agenda. And I think that's a first big step on making yeah. sure that it will be addressed. So, um, like I said, I'm not holding my breath, but we'll see and we'll keep pushing. We will keep pushing. Is there anything to this TAFE uni hybrid model that we heard a few headlines about mm-hmm. this week? It says here, the plan will require universities, TAFEs and industry players to work together through new centres of excellence to deliver tailored training. The centres will offer university students factory full training and trade qualified workers will be able to access degree level courses. Now, yeah, TAFEs have been decimated over the past couple of decades, funding cut, TAFEs closed down. Thanks to the Labor government last time, they were in government introducing vet fee help, like totally trashed mm-hmm. the vocational education centre yeah, by introducing yeah, market, yeah. markets and competition rather than providing public education for people who want to learn vocational skills. Um, anything to this hybrid model thing? What do we know about this? I mean, I think there's nothing wrong with looking at new models uh, for education and training. I mean, the key to that is that it works for for students. It, mm. It's a it, it, it it gives them what they need, a good student experience and knowledge. But, you know, really, again, that's that's not the bigger picture mm. uh, in terms of solving the issues that we have. Like you said, the privatization of TAFE, that has decimated, that has decimated our public TAFE system, the contestability model um, that was introduced. Um, th- like, that's what we need to look at. Um, and also, I think in those articles that I was reading, it was... There's so much focus on being job ready. Right. And that, that is my whole beef with this whole argument of education is about making people job ready. Yes, yeah, sure. You know, we all want to get jobs that we would, um, you know, like to work in and that pay well. But education, first and foremost, is about learning. Mm. It's about mm. like opening up your minds. It's about critical thinking. Mm. Um, also, so- like... <laughs> Sorry, I just interrupted you, but no, I just, yeah, it's so silly because I just don't think anyone in reality, in the real world, everyone knows it's bullshit to pretend that a course, a particular university course, prepares you wholly for any job. Everyone knows that you learn while you're in the job. And so then the university's like, oh, then okay, then we make the job also part of the course. So you have to do the job unpaid before you do the job. And that's how we make it job ready. Yeah. And it's like, that's just ridiculous. You're just trying to conflate. You're actually just, yeah, you're making the pure education part of this smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller because you're conflating the education and the work part. And yeah, you're losing something that's really valuable in an attempt to conflate it with something that's actually different you know absolutely absolutely and you know education institutions are not job factories they, yeah. they shouldn't be job factories and if we want to make sure that in future uh, people have the capacity to to be able to innovate and create and and move, move with the world then make higher education free so yeah. people mm-hmm. are able to train and retrain and gain the knowledge and skills that they need with a changing world that's the way to look at it all fine to look at new models of education but you know change the system that's what is really needed if we want to have a world which is fair and just and where people can have the jobs that they that they that are paid decently but also mm. that people want to do like it's Wonderful. not a pipe dream to be passionate about the work that you do <laughs> <laughs> imagine 
Well, I thought it was interesting. The plan, this hybrid model plan, aims to address workforce shortages in fields, including renewable energy. Thumbs Yay. up. Well, yeah, that's yeah. great. Aged care, very important, great. and, and they should be trained and well paid. That's good. And submarine manufacturing. Oh. Now, oh. <laughs> that um, just is, it is sickening because that's what they said. They've increased places at universities so people are able to. Um, you do it exactly that, you know, STEM places right. um, so that they can. So when did universities become kind of places where, you know, warmongering is supported? Mm. Well, ever since they started taking funding from Lockheed Martin, I mean, I read about yes, this a little well, bit in my exactly. book. There is crazy, it is crazy the number of weapons manufacturers that are partnered mm. with the universities mm. and sponsor mm. them mm. Um, to bring learning about death machines to uh, Shameful. the brains of our kids. It's disgraceful. Yeah. All right, Maureen, it's been so good having you on the show. Thank you very much for joining us on Serious Danger. Keep fighting the good fight, and uh, we hope to have you back on again soon. You too as well. Thank you for finally having me on the show. I'll get that digging. <laughs> Truly, we deserve that. <laughs> Thanks, Maureen. Thanks, have a Maureen. wonderful Cheers. day. Thanks so much, Tom and Emeril. Bye. We're almost out of time. We just need to go to the most important topic of today's podcast, Taylor Swift tickets. <laughs> now, have you secured them and did you jump the queue because that's on Australian behaviour? Uh, I haven't secured them. Uh, I, I, I won't commit to, uh, to not making a call to get Taylor Swift we tickets. Knew this, so. We knew this is the real Th- scoop. Th- this right is here. it. This yeah. is it. A uh, undue influence. Yes, here. yes. So uh, just one call is going to be enough. <laughs> I, 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 sp- I want to know who, who's at the end of this phone call. Is it Taylor herself? Well, you know, I <laughs> you, you, I shouldn't say, should I? I no, I. But I, I, I'm sure that I may well be able to get a ticket. Call to action this week. This is a campaign that's been around for a little while, but there was a bit of additional coverage this week on the push to ban spit hoods nationwide. Um, folks might have seen a petition in the last few years that was going around to ban spit hoods um, driven by Wayne Feller Morrison, who uh, died after a spit hood was used on him. Mm. His family did this massive campaign to ban spit hoods and were able to get legislation in South Australia, but everywhere else across the country it's kind of this like patchwork of regulation. Some police forces have an internal ban where they say that they won't use spit hoods. Queensland recently announced that um, in police watch houses, but they're still used in prisons, for example. And so without that actual legislation in place to completely prohibit the use of, of spit hoods, there's still no protection from these quite literally like they've been, you know, referred to as torture devices. Um, they are you there's this argument, you know, police and, and prisons argue that they're used for hygiene purposes or during COVID, they were like, oh, well, what if they spit on us? That's so important because of COVID. Mm. Um, but that primarily is not what they're used for. Um, they're, you know, basically used as as like a punishment a lot of the time mm. um, or just to, yeah, almost as, as a torture device and people can asphyxiate. They're incredibly dangerous, um, mm. particularly if you are having, you know, an acute mental health episode, for example. Um, they're, yeah, they're fucking awful things. It's quite confronting when, you know, you see footage. I think people will remember that footage of Dylan Voller in the Northern Territory in a um, youth prison 
with with a spit hood um, tied to a restraint chair and it's fucking awful, disproportionately used on Aboriginal people and we should ban them. So there is an action um, that Change the Record has created. You can email your local MP and urge them to um, support a ban on spit hoods in legislation. Changetherecord.org.au forward slash ban spit hoods. We'll put that link in the show notes as well. Awesome. Also, little plug, uh, this Wednesday, the uh, July 5th, I'm going to be hosting a panel about public education funding with Amy McMahon, friend of the show, Penny Ormond Payne, friend of the show. <laughs> it's about free making schools actually free, public education actually free for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all online and you can go and book in for that uh, via Amy McMahon's website. We'll be talking about the Queensland context, obviously, so I'll be a little bit out of my depth. Um, they did not get the funny one. They got mm, me. I wasn't even fucking asked. This is so rude. I like also though, I don't know when these are being launched or where they'll be available, but I can tell you the inside scoop. I don't know if this is inside scoop, but Penny and Amy's office have produced these stickers as part of this campaign that you should all try and get your hands on. Maybe if you contact the officers, they'll they'll send you some or you can get some from somewhere. They've got these stickers that are like how many fucking orchestra pits does does one private school need? Or, yes. uh, yeah, how many, you know, whatever they, all the shit that they have. And so it's all about public money for public schools. It's a cool campaign. That's 6 p.m. this Wednesday. Again, details in the show notes. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. As we mentioned, you can follow us on social media at Serious Danger AU, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. Email us anytime. Hello at SeriousDangerPod.com. Thanks, freaks. Bye. <laughs> Freaks and geeks. <laughs> Serious danger.